Isaiah 36. So um, 34 and 35, you know, we uh, have that, that great judgment that is proclaimed, and then we have the conclusion of how the Lord is going to bring this great fruitfulness and abundance and so many things that looked at the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It's really a beautiful closure after such a dark chapter in 34 to have you know, that radiant light of chapter 35 uh, lift the spirits out of you know, the judgment and hear the promises of God. And, and suddenly you come to chapter 36, and there is a specific moment in history that is recorded by the prophet, which, uh, interestingly enough, uh, this is one of those moments in history that you can read and almost think, you know, especially the critics, that it's somehow over-exaggerated, that, you know, things are blown out of proportion, 185,000 dead when you get into chapter 37. Uh, we have the historic record from the Assyrians' side in the Museum of Great Britain in London. The, the, the written record of what the Assyrians experienced, even this encounter with Israel. They rewrite, or they leave out the end, but they write all of the buildup and surrounding nations do. So this is one of those moments in history that is confirmed you know, like the Egyptians, they record all of history, but they leave out their defeats. You know, I don't know if you're aware of that. Like in Egyptian history, there's like they were never conquered by anyone ever. You know, they never lost in battle. They they, they didn't didn't record it. It's it's a funny thing that certain nations did. You have to look at other nations' history and their accounts of those very same circumstances, and all the details will be the same, except the other country records you know Egypt's loss and that country's victory, or the other countries record, you know, plural, the other countries record Assyria's loss and their victories over them. So, you know, here we're going to see a similar thing. Isaiah chapter 36, beginning at verse 1, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So remembering that you know, Assyria has systematically gone through and conquered uh, the surrounding, the nations that surround them and worked their way towards uh, Israel uh, in the, you know, north of uh, Judah, conquered uh, uh, Israel, the, the ten tribes, taken them away into captivity, and then has swept through Judah in the south and now is come upon Jerusalem. And, and that's where we stand at the moment. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. Now, the Rabshakeh is uh, a title. It's uh, the messenger, the emissary, the ambassador, however you want to uh, think of it. It's not a man's name, hence the definite article before the Rabshakeh. With a great army from Lachish, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. He stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, this is in itself a tremendous threat, okay? Um, just standing in this place. Uh, if, you know, you know, we often think of 
ancient warfare in regards to, you know, massive armies uh, just storming the gates and huge catapults. That's Hollywood, okay? The method was just surround the city from great distance and let nothing in or out. Just starve them out. Make it that they can't do anything. There are recorded sieges that lasted over 20 years. Army surrounding you, nowhere to go, no food. You know, really pleasant things like pull into town, rob all of your food stores, uh, and besiege you. And then when winter comes, leave because you can't get anything during that period of time, but return during the spring melt while the snow is still there and surround your city again, you know, over and over so that every year when you could be planting and harvesting, you're getting nothing. So the method was, you know, a war of attrition. And that's what's going on here is this surrounding of the city and a siege that's taking place to starve out the people. Most importantly at this point in the reference is he's standing on top of their water source. And he knows it. He's demonstrating to them, I'm right here in the place outside your walls that if it comes down to it, supplies your city with fresh water. And if I cut this aqueduct off, you don't have any life. You're going to die. They want them as a people, so they haven't cut off. So they're not just trying to kill them. They want to conquer them. They want to enrich themselves by enslaving the people of Judah and you know those housed inside Jerusalem. So it's you know difficult to describe. But you know if you wake up and you know the uh, criminals, the armed bandits are literally in your bedroom with their guns pointed at you. You know, you realize, like, I have no freedom anymore. I've, you know, any hope I had is lost there right here. That's the demonstration that he's making. I'm standing right on top of your aqueduct. I, I, I could easily, you know, take this from you. Uh, you need to surrender is going to become the message. It says... And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Now that little phrase, the great king, the king of Assyria, is, um, you know, if you have to declare that you're the great king, are you really the great king? You know, I mean, if you're the great king, then it goes without saying type of attitude. God is the great king. And he's going to actually get directly insultive towards God before it's all done. What he's trying to do in the moment is diminish whatever Hezekiah and his men think of Hezekiah as the king, you know. Yes, you're a king, but you're the little king. You know, I serve the great king. We, we've come here, and we're here to conquer you. I, uh, uh, just as a humorous illustration, I've noticed that mothers do this with uh, especially their sons. They get a little uppity, and suddenly everything the son has is little, and everything they have is somehow big and important. You know, you and your little friends, 
why don't you just get in your little truck and go to your little job? Or, you know, they, they diminish, right? They do, you know, it's, it's easy for moms to do that. They're, and they have the right to do that. I brought you into the world, you know, who are you to now rise up against me? The same idea, you know, the great king, the king of Assyria says to your little king, you know, that's sort of what's being said. What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. I underlined that statement. They are mere words. I would recommend that you put this in your memory when we get to chapter 37, verse 6. It's going to have significance. You might want to make note of that next to the verse. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now, I'll take the time right here to point out that this crisis that Judah and particularly Jerusalem and more particularly Hezekiah are currently facing is self-inflicted to a large degree. Hezekiah has brought this on himself. A certain portion of it is due to righteousness, but an, another larger portion of it is just straight through rebellion. He has snubbed the king of Assyria. He has not submitted. He has withdrawn tribute. He has done all kinds of things that provoke the Assyrian king to take this action against him. Had they not demonstrated their wealth, shown the things that they did to the Assyrians long ago, then when they come to this moment in history, Assyria would not be so bent on getting inside the city and teaching Hezekiah a lesson. I think perhaps we all sort of know what that's like. You know, I learned from pastors far more mature than me when I was very new to the ministry that in every pound of criticism, there's an ounce of truth and you'd be wise to learn it. When people come and have harsh things to say, you know, throw away the garbage and the sinfulness glean from what they're saying what is going to actually sharpen you and make you better as a believer and a Christian. Criticism isn't always empty and hollow. So here he's being rebuked by the Shenechereb over this uh, you know rebellion. Well, you know what is this that you're doing? You you're rebelling against me. Look you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt. Oh, wow. So apparently the, the spy network is very thorough because secretly Israel and Hezekiah have gone. You'll remember the rebuke of the Lord in previous chapters about what are you doing entering into negotiations with Egypt for military protection. And now... Assyria arrives and basically says, we know all about your plans to hire the Egyptians to come and help you with their chariots and their horsemen and all that. That's just a broken reed 
as he's going to describe it here. You know, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altar Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall wor worship before this altar? So this is a rebuke that is coming, and it's actually inappropriate. This is... Uh, the king of Assyria, the Rabshak and the Shennacherib here, uh, that don't understand what it is that Hezekiah has done. Um, the high places, are there are two elements to this. Uh, in Israel, and commonly amongst all the pagan nations, they would build these uh, you know, altars, at least, sometimes whole temples, on top of the mountaintops, you know, you think of like, you know, the Buddhist temple way up on the mountain. And the idea is getting closer to God, getting further away from the earth, getting further away from the sinfulness of humanity in order to get closer to God is what they were trying to do. The pagan sense of that was going on in Israel. You know, the high places established for the worship of Baal. God has open rebuke. For that there was also a subtle rebuke that was going on and a subtle rebellion. Subtle rebellion. It was an outright rebellion, but it, it had sort of a gray area in the mind of the people because they would build altars to Jehovah, God of the Bible, God the Father, on high places in order to perform sacrifices and worship the Lord there. The problem was that Leviticus did away with that. Previously, the people of Israel worshipped God in that way. We saw Abraham worship God in that play, play in that way. Go up to the high place, build the altar, worship God there. Give offering and sacrifice to God. But Moses arrives on the scene and they build the tabernacle. And now the whole nation is required to go to the tabernacle. And the Lord specifically says that they are to do away with worship in the high places. Because what that leads to is not only rebellion, it leads to a drifting from the truth of God's word. If men are left to interpret what they want to, if they're not relying upon the word of God, you know, a good example is the religion's around the world who have not written down their belief systems. They've handed them on through oral tradition and word of mouth. The historians that go back through the history of what can be found, because others outside the religion would write about it, and you see that it changes dramatically over time. They drift in their belief system. Because of, you know, culture after culture changes with time. Written word has to remain true to written word. You can't alter that. That's one of the beautiful things about God's word. Not only is it etched in stone, it is preserved throughout time. And now we have the verification to hold to. God's word alone is the true and right 
belief system. So God is saying, no more of these high places. You, you don't get to just stay up there. And I appreciate that you're trying to worship me, but you don't get to develop your own traditions. We've now codified our word and our worship, and everybody needs to come down here and be together for accountability. You can hold the priests accountable because you can walk in and see, are they doing it right? No. Okay, time to flip the money changers tables over, right? You can also see those that are saying two people who teach false things. Wait a minute, we're all over here worshiping and we can see that you're doing something up there on that mountaintop that God said was supposed to be done away with. It's important for them to come together in this way. The New Testament sense of things Hebrews 10.25, there the author of Hebrews says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to come to church. We all know people, or maybe we've even been that person and thought along, like, I just worship God how I want to. I stay at home. I go out in the woods. I just I find my own method. Why do I have to go to church? Because God said so. That's why. So, so that we can come to a church and say, this place is messed up. I don't want anything to do with this. And go find the next one and say, this one's okay. And I'll stay here and fellowship. And the people there where it's okay can say to me, hey, your attitude doesn't line up with the word of God. You need to grow up spiritually. And then I have to comply. It's for accountability. We don't just get to wander off on our own and become a kingdom unto ourselves. So Hezekiah has straightened that out. You know, someone who's not of the faith outside that, seeing it says, oh, well, you know, Hezekiah is messing everything up. You guys were all worshiping the Lord all over Israel. Along comes this reformer, Hezekiah, and he's removed all these places and diminished the worship of God because surely if there are hundreds of locations where God is worshiping, you know, being worshiped, he's more pleased with that than if you're all worshiping in one place. He doesn't know God at all. You're going to hear accusations from people outside the faith who do not understand what it is we are doing or what we believe. And it's meant to be an intimidation. That's what the Shenekareb is doing right here. He's you know, trying in, in all of these angles to intimidate the leadership of Judah. So in verse 8, chapter 36, Now therefore I urge you, Give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it the lord said to me go up against this land and destroy it he's really turning the screws at this point i, I have come here not just with the permission i've come up here by the direction of your god hey, look I, I tell you openly and honestly i've been through this type of emotional attack 
where people uh, come and they've got all kinds of things to say and you're left thinking, good Lord, the Lord is with this person more than he is me. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This is a completely godless man who's come into this situation and he's doing nothing more than trying to intimidate them. Then Eliakim, Shebna, Joah said to the Rabshak, uh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. And that was the diplomatic language. Uh, you know, the emissaries that went from country to country commonly were taught Aramaic so that no matter which country they were talking to, they could have a common language. So he, he's you know, saying, we're politicians. We know uh, the language of Aramaic. Speak to us in that sense, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Ramshak said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? And that literally comes to pass. They're selling doves droppings by the court when this is done you know you think like what would ever possess a person to even attempt to there were seed husks inside it and when you're starving to death like people do insane things so you know he's saying you're going to be reduced to that then the Rabshak stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is becoming a common phrase. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Man, this guy is really good at creating division and doubt and undermining everything. He's just driving the wedges in every place you should you know what i'm saying between god and the people between the leadership and the king between the people and the leadership that are with the king he's just tearing them apart as much as he can with his or do not let hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you nor let hezekiah make you trust in the lord saying the lord will surely deliver us this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you will eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards beware lest hezekiah persuade you saying the lord will deliver us this is a really powerful manipulation in the moment it just you know trying to create doubt in the hearts of the people towards the leadership that god has put them under god has given them hezekiah hezekiah is a good king all of the reforms I, you know I, i'll say again you look at history, it wasn't a revival. You know, some people will say what Hezekiah did was a revival. It wasn't a revival. It was a reform. A man went through and forcibly changed 
the rules and the law and the behavior of the people in the land. As soon as he's gone from the scene, the people revert to their sinful actions. But what he was doing was good and righteous, and it was going to profit them and benefit them as they went forward. But if you can drive a wedge between, you know what? I mean, what he's saying without saying it is, you guys inside that wall probably ought to have a, a military coup right now. You probably ought to go find that king and either put him to death for us or drag him out here and turn him over to us. Give us a gift of a gift-wrapped king. We'll accept that and we'll take you all as our slaves and you people can then just have your own vineyards and your own fig trees and drink from your own wells and your own cisterns. And then he makes that statement, until I come and take you away... That, that was actually how they worked with all of the, the countries that they conquered. They, they would take a group of like these Israelis and they would intermingle them with like six other groups and move them into a territory they had conquered. And then they would take groups of people from other locations with no Israelis and move them down into Israel and Judah and reoccupy that land and everybody then has to serve Assyria is the the concept you know they, they just shuffle up all of the groups so they have mixed languages and difficulty communicating with one another and they're required to then serve the Assyrian king so this isn't you know a, a proposal to them like we'll take good care of you you know make the agreement with us and for now we'll just leave you alone and when we're ready, we'll come and enslave you. And that's the way that our enemy works. He tries to get us to negotiate with him. The end goal is enslavement. Enslavement to sin, but enslavement just the same. 36.18, now the Shennacherib sort of slits his own throat. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king commandment was... Do not answer him. There is just such profound wisdom in that. When these types of attacks come, it is such a tremendous temptation to argue and defend ourselves and say all kinds of things. And in the end, the more that we keep our mouth shut, the better off we are. We see that biblical example all throughout the scripture. A prime example of that. Uh, I say Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, but Jude chapter 1 verse 9, it says, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, we don't have any idea what that is about. There's a lot of speculation, but honestly, we don't know what that was about. Dared not bring against him, that is Michael, against Satan himself, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Quite literally, the Lord will rebuke you. 
And that's what's going on here. Just keep silent. <clears throat> There's nothing to say to these people. You know, <laughs> initially the mindset is we're either going to be conquered or God is going to be our deliverer. So no amount of banter is going to do anything. We don't want to re mistakenly reveal anything. We don't want to mistakenly create any more problems. They're here. They've conquered all the nations. Now we're going to rely upon God. Just keep your mouth shut. And that's what they do. And then Eliakim, the son of Helkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshak. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 1, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. That's actually really smart. Fall into a state of mourning and go to worship. Go to the house of the Lord. Go to church. Be in prayer. Worship. Study. When the crisis when the difficulty, when the circumstances explode in your face, yes, mourning's going to hit your heart. You know, sorrow is going to hit your heart automatically. But then go to the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. Uh, they're not relying on the word of God in the way that they should, so they must send to the man of God in order to know the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul is rebuking the church at Corinth. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? It's amazing to me, especially as a pastor, to deliver the word of God to someone that's in need of it and have them act like, nah, that doesn't apply to me. It's really strange. It's an unfortunate thing that people don't look at the word of God for the potency that it contains. You know, Peter telling us that in the deity of Jesus Christ is everything that pertains to life and godliness. That covers everything. Everything you need to know. You know, people act like, oh, well, that's, you know, churchy stuff. I'm dealing with like real life issues. Right? Yeah, doesn't that statement drive you crazy? You know, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. That's not possible. That can't be. The more heavenly minded someone is, the more applicable to this life and this world they are. It is the word of God that is needed. They send to Isaiah. They need him to speak. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah. This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. The idea of a woman in labor who's had such intensity through the process that now in her exhaustion, she can't even push to bring the child into this world. You know, we 
don't think of it as being that complicated. You know, we think of it more along the lines of, well, you know, do a C-section. And they couldn't do that at this time. When a woman was to experience such a thing, it usually meant the death of the child and the death of the mother. When you reach that. So what what they're saying is we've come to the place where essentially we're all going to die. We're not coming out the other side of this. We're, we're going to experience death. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshak, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say, to your master. So go back to King Hezekiah and say this. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Remember, I told you to remember chapter 36, verse 5, when the Rabshak said, Say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Oh, you, you've got plans. You're going to conquer me. You're going to win this situation. That's just words. God is now saying of the Rabshak, those are just words. Don't be afraid of the words which you have heard. He's blasphemed me. Essentially what God is saying is, you know, when he arrived here, it was sort of an unfair fight between you and them. But now he's made it a fight between me and them. So all that he's got to say, it's just a lot of bluster. Now I'm going to deal with him directly. Now I'm going to settle the score. So 37 verse 7. Surely I will send a spirit upon him. Oh my, the spirit that lands in the camp of the Assyrians, if you know the punchline, right? 185,000 are dead when we're done at the hand of the spirit that passes through their camp. I'm going to send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will call, cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Oh, we'll see the description of how that takes place. Particularly the Shennacherib coming and speaking so blasphemously against God and speaking against the people of Israel. A very tragic outcome to the whole thing. So now Shennacherib's threat and Hezekiah's prayer in verse 8. The Rabshak returned found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. The king heard concerning Terkaka, king of Ethiopia, that he had come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you. Now the blasphemy just keeps stacking up. Now God's a liar? No, don't let God convince you of something that is untrue, saying Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, 
You have heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozen, Haran, Respa, the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arped, the king of Sepharvaim, Hena, Iva, and Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. I, uh, I have a habit. I've only received uh, three nasty letters uh, in you know all the years we've been down here. Uh, one of them was unsigned, no return address, and unsigned. And so I just shredded it without reading it. I mean, if you're not going to at least, you know, have the boldness to tell me who you are so that I can answer whatever you say, you know, I read the first few opening lines and it's just basically like, you stink and let me tell you all the ways. And so bah, right through the shredder. I'm not going to I'm not going to let that consume any portion of my mind. You know, the other two were just so completely ridiculous. You know, they're just people who don't know the Lord, who have a hate for the Lord, and they've focused on me and decided that it's me they actually hate. You know, it's not, it's not even very, you know, veiled. You read the letter and it's like clear. Okay, this person hates Jesus. And that's really all they're expressing. You know, pray about it. Do I return? Do I say something? That, no, just shred the letter. A lot of times, you know, as believers, you're going to get messages from people who everything they've got to say negative doesn't really have anything to do with you. You know, sometimes it doesn't even have much to do with the Lord. They're arguing with someone from their past. As they look at you, they've had some experience in their youth, in their church, somewhere, and they've decided you're the person who needs to get the vent. Oh, well, you know, if the Lord leads you to do something about that, oh, great. Most of the time, what we see Hezekiah do right here is really the best thing to do. You get uh, the nasty letter and... Uh, you do what he did. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. There it is again. And spread it before the Lord. <laughs> the concept is, this isn't for me, Lord. I just, I, this is your letter. I just thought I'd deliver it to you. You know, and you see what follows here. He spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. Now, this is um, a, a heavenly vision, but he's probably taking it from the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the idea that that was the dwelling place of the Lord, which is an image of heaven. You are God, you alone, and all the kingdoms of earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. See, he's, he's at this point a little more tuned in. Previously, he gets a message, 
They're in the midst of a siege. Things are terrible. And send to Isaiah. You know, what, what are we supposed to do with this threat that's come? The reassurance that the Lord is going to handle this situation. Now the letter comes. He's a little more calm. You know, seemingly in his reaction to, to this approach. You know, this, this is all against you, Lord. It's not against me. This is, this is blasphemy against you. Further blasphemy. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Further testimony, Lord, that you alone are God. You know, you can only say that with a confidence when you're not living in open rebellion against God. You know, you go back through particularly the kings of the ten northern tribes, and none of them were able to pray this type of prayer with an absolute clear conscience. They all were involved in idolatry, every one of them. You know, some of them in the sickest, most perverted, sinful Baal worship imaginable. You, you don't get to fall on your face and plead to God, you know, when you're in this type of need of his help. It's it's with a clear. We're human. We're sinful, so it's not as though we can stand before God and say, "Lord, I'm perfect. Therefore, save me from these circumstances." But I think each of us knows what it's like to have those things that the Lord is dealing with us about, and we aren't cooperating with Him. And now our circumstances have turned on us, and we need the Lord's help. And the fact that we aren't living in our relationship with the Lord, with a clear conscience, robs us of that confidence to just go to Him and say, please take care of these circumstances. God isn't going to function any less. It's just a matter of we're ripping ourselves off. we got a wonderful example here of a man who has led these two tribes in the south, known as Judah, to repent of their sins and return to the Lord. And because he has this clear conscience, he can just go and say, God, save us from this man's hands and his intentions. That's a wonderful place to live. And the simplicity and the knowledge that God is hearing me. God will respond. Isaiah 37 verse 21, the word of the Lord concerning Shennacherib at this point. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Shennacherib, king of Assyria, pause there for a moment. We don't have any indication that anyone went to Isaiah and told him about these circumstances, nor do we have any indication that anyone went to Isaiah and told him that Hezekiah has gone to prayer about this. This is the clear idea that Hezekiah prays to the Lord, the Lord speaks to Isaiah, Isaiah then speaks to Hezekiah. 
so that Hezekiah has the confirmation, I am hearing from the Lord. Okay? It's a wonderful thing when you're in prayer and then somebody speaks to you without any knowledge of what you're in prayer about and shares with you the word of the Lord. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I have lots of friends who just shoot me a text message, you know, call me up, send me an email and just say, hey, the Lord laid this on my heart. And it's exactly what the Lord had said to me, the very passage the Lord had spoken to me from in the scripture. The, the confirmation, the solid confirmation that I'm praying God's hearing and he's answering me. You know, you can kind of feel like, am I tricking myself? You know, I prayed and then I went and read in the Bible and I found this passage and it's very applicable to my circumstances. But is that just me convincing myself of what I'm trying to convince myself of? When it comes from the external source, it's really precious. This is another reason it's so important to be integrated with the body of Christ. That people around us can act and behave on behalf of the Lord in our environment. Also that we would be able to do that in other people's lives. The Lord speaks to you, tells you to speak to someone, strongly encourage it. 37 verse 22, this is the word which the Lord, this is Isaiah saying, you know, you prayed and, uh, you know, because you prayed to me against Shennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. That's Shennacherib, king of Assyria. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. You might not have seen it. You know, you came there and stood on the aqueduct and, you know, declared those things that were so intimidating. And, you know, they're begging you, oh, please stop talking in Hebrew. Everybody can hear you. You know, you, you, you might have felt like you intimidated them. But behind your back, she's thumbing her nose at you. She's mocking you behind your back. You can think whatever you want to about it. She's laughed you to scorn. The daughter's shaking her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Oh, not, not the people, not Hezekiah. You see, this is actually a really powerful commentary upon the king of Assyria. He's self-reliant. He doesn't believe in any supernatural power. As much as they worship their gods, as much as they have all of this pagan idolatry in their presence, they know there's nothing behind it. They believe themselves to be self-made. They believe themselves to be self-accomplished. And that's why they can come at Israel and blaspheme God and say these things against the king and the people. Because in their mind, there's nothing behind what they believe in either. And right now, God is sending the rebuke back. Now, here's something to think about. In all likelihood, none of this message actually goes back to Shennacherib or Rebshek. This is, this is the message that's for Hezekiah and the people. 
It's not as though they went, oh, okay, sat down, wrote this out, and then sent the letter back, typed up an email, and you know, hit send. This is a message for them so that they can understand how much God is on their side. By your servants, you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter into farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? How I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps and ruins? He, he's speaking to the mentality of the Assyrian forces. And he's saying to them, are you not aware of the story of creation? I'm the God of the known universe. I'm the God of all things. You don't have any power within yourself, but that I've given it to you. You're rejecting that. You're, you're acting as though that's not real. You're acting as though that's a fiction. You know, this is the mindset of the world, you guys. You, you think about it, right? In, in China, if you say that you believe in God, if that becomes enough of an issue in their communities, they'll put you in a psych, psychiatric facility and treat you for the God delusion that you're mentally ill with. You, you, have, you have a mental illness that causes you to believe in the existence of God. The world rejects the existence of God. This is what the Lord is saying to the people of Assyria, to their, their leaders right now. You, you have rejected me. I've made all of these things, and you're rejecting Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. Those that you conquered, they were as the grass of the field and the green herb because I gave you power over them as the grass of the housetops, the grain blighted before it is grown. You know, a sick, weak plant, you were able to just mow them down because of the strength I gave you. But I know your dwelling place, your going out and coming in and your rage against me. <laughs> just listen. God is speaking in a very mocking manner. You know, I know your address. I know when you go to the bathroom. I know you're going out and you're coming in. You know, I know this mental rage you've developed. Not just the words coming out. I've seen you on your own when you're talking to yourself and your heart's just mulling away. I, I know who you are is what he's saying. I know everything about you. Because your rage against me and your atonement have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This was a practice of the Assyrians. You know, they, they would put that fish hook through the cheek or the lip or the nose of their people like the bridle of a horse and they would then tie them or chain them together by the hook 
and tie their hands behind the back and give the, the line to one man, usually a very elderly man or a child, would then lead long lines of slaves with this hook through their flesh. And the Lord is mocking them completely, saying, I'm going to put a hook through your nose. I'm going to turn you around 180 degrees, and I'm going to lead you home. You know, you, you've done this to nations in such a brutal way. The day's coming where I'm going to do it to you. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year. Now, now here's the thing, you guys. This is the strongest evidence I'm saying that God is saying this to the Israeli people, to the people of Judah, not addressing directly. He's saying all of this stuff to build his children's hearts up. You know, his nation's reassurance is what he's looking for. Because right now, what he says, this shall be assigned to you, this is only to his people. That when this transpires, it not only is the initial thing going to convince you that I've said these things and I'm the one who accomplished them, but as the time passes, it's just going to fortify your relationship with me even further. This shall be assigned to you. You shall eat this year, such as grows of itself. You're not going to have time to plant and let it grow and harvest. When I've delivered you from this, you're going to have food. You're not going to be starving under siege inside this building. You're going to go out to the fields, and what's just grown up in the fields naturally from the seed that was left over that's grown out of your compost pile, you know, all the pumpkin seeds and whatnot that have, you know, germinated and spread. You're going to, that's what you're going to have for food, what's just come up natural in that way. The second year, what springs up from the same. You know, this this circumstance is going to cause it that you're going to have to rely upon it for two years. Also, in the third year, sow and reap. So by the third year, you'll be able to plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped to the house of Judah shall again take root downward. Right there, like planted, like the same way they would plant plants, the people are going to take root you know, downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant than those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the recovery from what they've been through will not be easy, but by the third year, things will return to normal. So you're going to have the initial occurrence, and then three years from now, you're going to look back and almost think like, did that even happen? <laughs> this is incredible that we're here and surviving. 37 verse 33, therefore... Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow here. So there isn't even going to be you know, some big armed conflict, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city. Boy, you know, the unseen God is sometimes difficult to fully embrace as far as being a physical defender. And yet, he gives the assurance that he is, and he demonstrates repeatedly that he is. So I will defend this city to save it 
for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That's a really wonderful poetic thing that he's reaching back to David and saying, because of the promises I made King David, which then also reflect to the future son of David, Jesus. I'm going to accomplish these things because of this family bloodline. I, you know, what I promised David, that I would build of him a mighty house, the Messiah would come. I'm going to fulfill these things for my word's sake. So now in verse 36, Sennacherib's defeat and death. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. When the people rose early in the morning, there were their corpses all dead. You can see that also recorded in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, and 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 21 and 22. So Shennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained in Nineveh. That's the capital of the Assyrian country. I would think you would just pack your junk and drift away at that point, you know. If you wake up really well rested and realize, I have completely overslept. Wonder why my servant didn't come in and wake me at the proper time. And you call his name and he doesn't answer. I'm totally speculating. But then you wander outside your tent. And, you know, it's got to be an eerie feeling to wake up in a completely encamped army and it's just silent. And you step outside and there's just dead corpses as far as you can see. That's got to be, I mean, hair raising probably doesn't even come close. You know, what a vulnerable place to suddenly find yourself in, right? You were on the aqueduct just days ago, running your mouth and making a big scene and writing letters, and suddenly everyone's dead around you and you're just all alone. You probably haul out of there as fast as you can possibly go. At what point do you stop running? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, because if they send out the search party after you, no matter how far away you are, all the way back to Nineveh, you're probably thinking, if they sent out a search party after me two hours after I left, then they're just two hours behind. You're probably just running and hiding and scared and fearful and the thoughts. What a horrible thing to experience. Really, really shocking. Now, between verse 37 and 38, there's actually 20 years that transpire when it says it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adramaic and Sherazar, struck him down with a sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Azarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place, struck down by the sword, as the Lord had said. You're going to return to your homeland. You're never coming back here. And you're going to be struck down in your own house. Okay. The idea is spiritually, you're going to be struck down spiritually in your own spiritual house 
buy your own house. His sons killed him. Now, I'll tell you this, but I got to tell you, it's absolute Jewish legend. There's nothing that confirms this from history in any way. Jewish legend says that Shennacherib heard that the Lord had blessed Abraham because Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac up to the Lord. And so he in turn decided he would outdo Abraham, offer up two of his sons, and actually follow through with it. His two sons caught wind of the plan to kill them and then went and killed their father as a result. No idea if that's got any substance to it at all. But we know for certain that what the Lord had predicted came true upon this man. His own sons killed him in his own house of worship. Eh, what a horrible end. You know, your own children turning on you. I, I can't imagine. I, I mean, you know, we think about, you know, child-rearing and parenting. I cannot imagine what it would be like to even have my children turn against me emotionally. You know, I'm so close with my kids. They're, they're my best friends. And I, I can't even imagine coming to the place where they would have any desire to harm me or kill me. What, what a terrible end. What, what a terrible life to live a thing that was blasphemous against the Lord and come to a tragic end. I pray that you know every one of us would be as Hezekiah. Men and women truly devoted to the work of the Lord and learning to trust in Him more and more every single day. Hearing the promises of the Lord of the remnant and the rooting of his people, the fruitfulness and growth. You know, the world's fallen apart. That doesn't mean we have to, right? There's lots of Shennacherib all around us. Doesn't have to be our existence. The great fruitfulness of what the Lord promised David and what the Lord brought us through Jesus is what every one of us should desire. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are, again, very, very grateful for who you are and what you do. Really, so blessed by you. Our lives, no matter how difficult or challenging they are, we have you. We have your promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for those promises, Lord. Help us to be men and women who trust them who hear from whatever man or woman is an Isaiah in our lives, Lord, who learn to hear from you directly. Your voice promised the holy place that we're able to enter into freely. Help us to be in that constant confidence of our relationship with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.